0: Acts 6 closes, we find Stephen, kind of the character we've been focusing for the last couple of weeks on. We find him in what can best be said is a precarious situation. Following a heated debate with members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Stephen is arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. This was a 70-member Jewish council that Uh, ruled on matters dealing with the land, dealing with the people. So he's arrested. He's brought before this ruling body and he's charged with speaking blasphemy, speaking blasphemy against Moses, against the law, against their religious customs and the temple. And while these were serious accusations, before we ever even get to Acts chapter 7, we know, because we've gone through chapter 6, that Stephen is totally innocent of what they're accusing him of. And we know this for two different ways, two different reasons. First, everyone knew that the witnesses that were accusing Stephen of such things were not credible. Stephen knew they weren't credible because he knew what he said. Even his accusers knew that they weren't credible because we're told the context of Acts chapter 6. These men had been uh, secretly picked out. They had been fed lies. They were false witnesses. Right from the beginning, we know they're false witnesses. Stephen knows they're false witnesses. And presumably even the council. The second thing in regards to his innocence that we should note coming out of Acts chapter 6, beyond the fact that those that were standing there this was a kangaroo court. They had no credibility. But we also see at the very end of Acts chapter 6, verse 15, we see that God, in one of the weirdest events in the New Testament, he miraculously affirmed Stephen's character through this heavenly countenance, his face shone like the face of an angel, demonstrating God's approval of not just this man, but also his message. Luke closes the chapter. He tells us that all of the council, looking steadfastly at him, they're staring. They're silent. They're staring. They saw his face. And in much the same way that we noted last Sunday that Moses' heavenly countenance, as he came off of Mount Sinai, validated the old covenant, Stephen's heavenly countenance served to validate the new. You can imagine that as Stephen gets up to finally present his defense. So you've heard the accusers, you've heard these slanderers, you've heard the lies. Stephen has sat there, and as he gets up to mount a defense, his face begins to shine to the point that he's not saying anything at this point. People are just staring. You uh, You can reckon that everyone is honed in on Stephen, and he has everyone, his audience, He has their undivided attention. It's not every day the guy who's about to start talking starts glowing radioactively. Well, we're told, verse one of chapter seven, then the high priest, who you should note at this point is still Caiaphas, still the very high priest that we found uh, in the story, the narrative of Jesus, that crook, still this guy, the same high priest that we've seen in the book of Acts, interacting with, with with. Peter and John, the same high priest, Caiaphas. He looks at Stephen. Someone's got to break the ice. Someone's got to kind of like work through the awkwardness. Stephen's glowing. Caiaphas is looking steadfastly. He mounts courage and he just says, are these things so? Now, though the high priest is interested in hearing Stephen's response to the accusations that have just been levied against him, you need to understand right from the beginning that Stephen's response, this defense, it's not much of a defense at all. As a matter of fact, Stephen will do nothing of the sort through the chapter to try to defend his actions. He, he won't do anything to justify his deeds No, God had already made it clear he was innocent. Everyone knew these men were liars. And so Stephen uses the opportunity here not to defend himself, but to speak truth directly into the lives of these religious men. Basically, he sees the opportunity to witness, to share his faith, to point to the word of God and illuminate truth so that these men might be saved. I think Stephen's heart as the evangelist is that these religious men, though they had rejected Jesus, though Peter and John had proven uh, not to be able to, to reason with them, Stephen's thinking, well, maybe the third time's the charm. Maybe they'll hear me. Maybe they'll listen. Maybe these stubborn men will humble themselves and recognize Jesus. And to accomplish his task, Stephen will present for them an honest recounting of Jewish history to illustrate five key lessons. Now, before we we get to the sermon itself, almost every pastor's approach to this sermon, it's one of two things. First, pastors will approach this sermon by cherry-picking things that they like, singling them out, and building a whole sermon off of them, more topically working their way through the text. Others who feel more inclined to teach expositionally or verse by verse, chapter by chapter, instead of picking out lessons, just teaching what the text says itself. What ends up happening with these people is that it becomes very hard as you're following them to pull out like the general theme. You know, every good Bible study has a point. Every good Bible study isn't like a series of unrelated ideas that kind of get packaged and presented, but ideas that kind of fit together for a big purpose. You see what I'm saying? And so when you're listening to people that teach expositionally through the text, often there's no continuity. It's like you'll be, you'll be listening, and I did this this past week because I'm an expositional guy, Calvary Chapel. I love verse-by-verse teaching. Almost every guy I listened to, there were great nuggets of truth that popped out throughout the whole sermon. But I got to the end and I'll be honest with you guys that I really respect who who are kind of like my Mount Rushmore of Bible teachers. I got to the end of their exposition of this passage and I thought, man, there was a lot of cool stuff. I have no idea what the sermon was about. You see, on either end, just picking out lessons, or just covering the essence of the text, neither really help us understand what Stephen is really trying to say. He has an audience. This religious Sanhedrin, this synagogue of the freedmen, these false accusers, and he's speaking to the audience, truth aimed at the audience. And so we need to understand, we need to place it in context, and therefore, and you can mind the siren as it passes by the building, As you're looking, he's speaking to these religious leaders, one. He's going to their history, two, to present five lessons that they would understand. I'm going to give you all five lessons right from the beginning. We're going to work through them over the next probably two to three weeks. I'm going to give you all five right from the beginning. This is what Stephen is trying to say in presenting five uh, points of history. First, in presenting the framework of Abraham's relationship with God, Stephen illustrates that faith in Jesus was consistent with the life that God had called them to live. His second point, in presenting the patriarchs' interactions with Joseph, Stephen illustrates that God used their rejection of Jesus to exalt him to a position of savior. Lesson number three, in presenting their rejection of Moses, Stephen illustrates that the Jews trusted God not Moses to deliver them Four, Stephen will explain that their rejection of Jesus was based in their misguided reliance on the religious formalities of the law, their customs and the temple. And finally, and it's consistent throughout the whole sermon based on the pattern of Israel's history, though they had initially rejected Jesus, if these men simply stopped resisting the Holy spirit, God would be more than willing to give them a second chance. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to kind of wrap your brain on uh, around five big overarching points. We're going to unpack them uh, as we work our way through the text. Now, one final thing before we get there. In this recounting of Israel's history that Stephen does before this group of religious men, there's often a controversy that kind of arises based upon Acts chapter 7. And that's the notion that Stephen includes extra biblical references or historical details. When he's talking about these these moments of history, he brings up things that aren't in the Old Testament. He brings up details. He brings up references. He brings up context that aren't there. And people will say, well, look, these discrepancies prove that the book of Acts can't be trusted, at least Stephen's sermon can't be trusted. Well, you know what? None of scripture can be trusted. They'll point to details that Stephen brings up. They'll point back to the Old Testament, say, see, those things aren't there. Stephen mentions them here. You can't trust any of it. Well, the problem is that these critics fail to recognize one key point. Adding to a story isn't in and of itself proof of some kind of textual inconsistency as long as the new detail doesn't contradict what has already been recorded as truth. I'll give you an example of the contrary. If you got back after fishing and your buddy said, hey, well, what, did you catch anything? And you're like, I caught this bass. It was, like, it was like this big. We'd be like, cool, great. Now, a couple months later, we come back talking about this fishing trip, and you're like, yeah, last time I went fishing, man, I caught a bass. It was like, it was like this big. Now, if I'm there, and I've heard both of these references, I'm like, well, wait a second. On one end, you're like, it was this big. But now you're like, it was this big. And you know, like, when you get really old, you're like, you caught a whale that day. Like, it's gigantic. Like, stories can, with new details and new wrinkles, become embellished. And thus, they're not trustworthy. But if in recounting your fishing story, you just kind of did a drive-by. Yeah, we went fishing. I caught this fish. It was great. We ate it. But then the next time you told the story, you're like, yeah, we went to Lake Lanier. I caught a bass and we ate it. You're not being like false. Like there's no discrepancy because you're adding context. You're not contradicting context. Though Stephen adds to the story in a lot of ways, things we don't find in the Bible beforehand, we can trust in this moment because he's not contradicting anything that these new details are important for us. They're trustworthy. I'll give you two other reasons that you can trust what Stephen will say. One, these religious leaders were the experts of Jewish history. And if what Stephen was recounting was false narrative, you would imagine that they would disagree with him, right? That this would be part of the criticism. Never once do these religious leaders, the experts of history, contradict or call Stephen to account for anything that he said. They will disagree with his conclusion, but they never discredit the details he brings up, which should tell us that we know during this time period that there weren't other historical accounts, more books of history than just what we find included in the Old Testament. Obviously, these books, Stephen's referencing, these books circulated. These books were common knowledge. Secondly, you can trust these new details. And I I put this one last because this is often like that final last ditch go-to, you know, well, the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible, so it must be true. And people often look at that, if you use that first, like, that, you didn't answer the question as how there's a discrepancy. Holy Spirit aside, seriously? At the end, this is relevant because we do know that the Holy Spirit is speaking through Luke. Like we're getting this story through Luke and Stephen is speaking also by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a man full of the Spirit, which means that the word Stephen's using, their ultimate origin is not Stephen, it's not Luke, but, but instead it's the Holy Spirit which means that now the Holy Spirit is adding context to the story for our benefit, for our inclusion, which means it can be trusted. Well, let's just dive in. Our first lesson, a reminder, in presenting the framework of Abraham's relationship with God, Stephen illustrates that faith in Jesus was consistent with the life God had called them to live. So Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. I like that. Stephen here, he identifies with his audience, brothers. I, I, we're, we're one in the same. We're cut from the same cloth, same mold. We have the same heritage and, and, and fathers. We're family, brothers. He also, he's also refers to them as fathers, which is, which is a term of endearment, a term of respect. You guys are the fathers of Israel. You're the Sanhedrin, you're the experts in Scripture. You have a place of authority, a place of power, and thus I will respect your position. Then he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then Abraham came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, Abraham moved to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage, oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom uh, they they will be in bondage. I will judge, says God. And after that, they shall come out. They shall serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham begot Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Now let's for a moment examine the framework of Abraham's relationship with God. So Stephen's point is that Abraham, his life, how God worked with him, his relationship with God, everything about Abraham, the father of the nation, points to the reality that Jesus and everything he did and everything he said is actually more in line with the way that God had intended life to be than the way that you have designed life to be. This is his overarching point. And so Abraham's relationship tells us a lot. This is what Stephen's saying. And the first point that you should take out of this is that Abraham's relationship with God, based upon the text, is that it was based in unmerited favor. You know what's interesting? Abraham. Abraham will be, will come to be one of the most pivotal, important men of all of the Bible. Abraham is mentioned 290 times in Scripture. He's the father of the Hebrew nation. He's called the friend of God. He's viewed as the father of the faith. But even though Abraham is such an important individual when it comes to scripture and theology, have you ever considered that scripture never actually indicates why God chose Abraham in the first place? In verse 2, Stephen avoids providing clarity concerning the topic by simply echoing with the Old Testament backdrop had already said. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Stephen never tells why. Well, why did he? What was the point? You see, in addition, the prophet Isaiah, the author of Hebrews, all they'll say concerning the topic is that Abraham was called by God, never providing an explanation why though we don't know the ultimate reason, scripture is clear on two points. First, God was the one who initiated contact with Abraham. And secondly, there's no evidence that Abraham had done anything to necessitate the calling of God and this unmerited favor. So God came to Abraham. Abraham didn't come to God. And there was nothing about Abraham that necessitated God coming to him in the first place. He could have picked anyone, but he picked Abraham. As a matter of fact, the only detail we have concerning the life of Abraham before this encounter with God seems to indicate the opposite reality. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, these fathers dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And note, and they served other gods. You know, God came to Noah for a purpose, right? Ultimately to build a boat, save humanity. But we're actually told in Genesis chapter six, why God picked Noah for this particular task. We're told that, that of a world that was, that was nothing but evil, nothing but wicked, there was one righteous man. Before God comes to Noah, before God calls Noah, we're told very specifically, Noah was a righteous man, which indicates why God chose Noah. But the same cannot be said concerning Abraham. According to Joshua, Abraham, before God came to him, he was what? He was not a righteous man. He was a pagan idolater. You can do a Google of like, the the ancient gods of the Mesopotamians. And, and, And the worship of these gods was perverted. It was twisted. It was sick. There was child sacrifices and prostitution, all kinds of wickedness that was existing. And yet, though Abraham worshiped these other gods, ironic, he's also polytheistic, it's plural, God still came to him. God came to him, and he called him out. You see, right from the beginning, this is the point Stephen is making it clear. Look at Abraham's relationship with God. Like you have this sense of entitlement, this sense of self-worth because you're Jews, because you're Hebrews, because you're descendants of Abraham. But Abraham, God came to Abraham. God called Abraham. And the fundamental basis for this relationship and for this calling was not some intrinsic righteousness or some inherent goodness. It was completely 100% based in the reality that God loved Abraham. Unmerited favor. God could have picked anyone, could have chosen anyone. And yet he chose Abraham. There's another word that we have, for unmerited favor. It's the word grace. That God looks to us and the basis of your relationship with God is not that you deserve it or that you've earned it or that you're good enough for it. The basis, the foundation, the bedrock of your relationship with God, if Abraham is the father of the faith, is that God loves you. Not because of you, in spite of you, that God looks on you with grace, unmerited favor, nothing you can knuckle up or, or, or earn down, nothing you can control, just God gives it. It's free. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I just have to receive it. And this is the, be- the beginning of what Abraham and his relationship with God was all about. He's in Ur, worshiping other gods, and God appears to him and says, I have something better for you. But you need to leave. You need to jet. You need to bolt. You need to go to a land that I will show you. Well, why me, God? It doesn't matter. Why not them? It doesn't matter. So you're saying that it's just because you love me? Yes. It's awesome. And it runs counterintuitive to the whole notion of what these religious leaders even thought concerning Abraham, at least how that played out. The second thing about Abraham's relationship that we should note is that the only necessary requirement now for Abraham to fully enjoy the unmerited favor that God had graciously bestowed him would be to obey, like total obedience. So God comes to Abraham's like, yo, Abe, I got something cool for you. This promised land, Give it to you, your descendants. going to work a very cool thing. Abraham's like, me? God's like, yeah, you. Why me? Doesn't matter. You game? And Abraham, at that point, grace bestowed to all of us, by the way. But now how do we enjoy this unmerited favor? How do we maximize this unmerited favor? How do we walk in this unmerited favor or this grace of God? Well, how would Abraham unpack it? He would obey. Now, Stephen doesn't go into details concerning all of the things that God had promised Abraham and his descendants, but he does make it clear that these promises were conditioned upon his obedience. According to verse three, God commanded him, right? The God of glory appeared to Abraham and then said what? Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Though Abraham had done nothing to earn God's favor, Total obedience would be the only way he could enjoy this favor. Hebrews chapter 11 provides us an interesting detail about what's happening here. We're told that Abraham, when he was called, did what? Obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, not even knowing where he was going. God's grace was bestowed and Abraham accepted it. How do we know? Because he immediately obeyed God. Now, in order to hammer home the importance of the point, Stephen does something interesting. You might have overlooked it when we were reading through the story, but Stephen, in this account, he includes an interesting detail about Abraham's calling that's not found in the original Genesis account. Let me read for you what Genesis says, beginning in chapter 11, verse 31, carrying us into chapter 12. We're told that Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, his daughter-in-law Sarah. I'm paraphrasing. They went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And when they had come to Haran, they dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205. Terah died in Haran. The Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, go to a land I will show you. So Abraham does what? He departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Do you catch the difference? Look look back. How does Stephen recount his story? Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to who? To our father Abraham, where? When he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, saying to him, get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now, according to the narrative of Genesis 11, it is Terah the father of Abraham that initiates the move. Out of nowhere, he unexplainably decides to move from Ur to the land of Canaan, only to end up settling in the city of Haran before he ultimately dies. Then, according to Genesis 12, following Terah's death, God speaks to Abraham in Haran and instructs him to get out of your country Your family, your father's house, go to a land I'll show you. However, Stephen, he's clear, right? That when was the command initially given to Abraham? When he was in Haran? No. As a matter of fact, we're told that Abraham, that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that's Ur, before he dwelt in Haran. And then gave him these instructions. As a matter of fact, just to avoid maybe the discrepancy of this particular text, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7 affirms this very point by Stephen. Nehemiah says that God chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, some have tried to use this to discredit Stephen's account, but I think a better, more simplistic explanation is that God had to give Abraham the same instructions twice. The first occurring when Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. And in this instance, God appeared to him according to Stephen's account and said, get out and go. The second taking place following Terah's death in Haran. Note, we have no mention of God appearing to Abraham, only speaking. Now, what's significant about this detail is that in both instances, we have the same basic command, don't we? centers around two phrases. The first phrase is get out of, from. The second phrase is come to. Get out of, from, come to. You see, when God first appeared to Abraham in Ur, he commanded him to do what? To get out of his country and from his relatives and come to a land that he would show him. But did Abraham obey? Doesn't seem so, does it? Like on, on some aspect, he was faithful to get out of the country because they leave Ur. But did he leave his family as God had instructed? No, because who pals along? Tara. Tara travels. This is going directly against what get out of. Abraham's like, cool, I'm there. Let's, let's, let's pack up the family and move to Beverly. Hills. Let's go. Getting out of Ur. And Tara's like, can I come? And Abraham's like, oh, God said you're really supposed to go. Okay, tag along. And what happens? They get stuck. They never make it to the land of promise because they don't obey the first instruction. They don't obey the next instruction. Get out of, good, check mark, from, uh, they never make it to. They get stuck in Haran. And subsequently, it's not until Terah dies, like removing that problem, that God comes again to Abraham. It's like, yo, brother, I don't know what we're waiting on. I don't know if you're learning some lessons here are you ready now to come to a land that I will show you? See, Stephen's point is very simple. His whole life, his whole experience with God was not about Abraham. He was a pagan Gentile worshiping false gods. God loved him, chose him, called him based on his grace. But God's work in Abraham's life and his ability to enjoy all that God had for him was completely dependent upon whether or not Abraham would be fully obedient. There's a third point about Abraham's relationship with God, after receiving unmerited favor and then finally demonstrating obedience, you know, by coming into the land. Abraham at this juncture, he would have to place his entire faith in the reality that God would make good on his promises even when there was no evidence. Grace, obedience, and now faith. It's an interesting progression, isn't it? Verse five, Stephen points out that even when Abraham had no child, so he finally gets moving, he gets to the land, he has no child, but God still promised what? To give him the land as a possession, not just to him, but to the descendants that would come after him. Kind of a problem when you don't have any kids because of the unmerited favor that God had demonstrated in calling Abraham out of Ur and the incredible grace God had showed in giving him a second chance to be obedient, Abraham came to realize an important lesson. Note, he came to realize that his relationship with God and the ability to be obedient to God relied entirely on his faith in God. See, over time, Abraham would have to learn how to trust God. Like he would have to learn to have faith in the unseen, the things that didn't make sense. He had to trust in the promises of God. And, and a story of Abraham's life as an encouragement to us all is that there was a process to this. It's interesting, even when Abraham leaves Haran, does he actually leave his full family behind? No, (laughs) he takes Lot. And Lot would become more of a headache than anything else. But once again, we see God's grace still being demonstrated, giving Abraham second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And in the process of time, Abraham realizing I've got this grace of God, I gotta figure out how to do that. And, And I gotta be obedient to God and I gotta figure out how to do that. But the only way I can do both, enjoy God's grace and be obedient to God's commands is to walk in faith, trusting God knows what he's doing. These religious men, the audience, they took pride in being descendants of Abraham when they had completely overlooked the example that Abraham had set for them, which is why Stephen, now setting up this whole basis of faith, he points out that it was only after Abraham had come to terms with the necessity of faith that God gave him the covenant of circumcision. Now, I'm not going to go into all kinds of details, but, but circumcision, or what we would just define as the act of cutting away the flesh. It's the most simplistic way to think about it. Circumcision was instituted by God to be a physical reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It's what set them apart, it's what made them distinct. But understand, circumcision wasn't a covenant. It was a physical sign to remind them of a covenant. See what I'm saying? Kind of akin to to like baptism. We get baptized, not because we get saved, but we get baptized to kind of let everybody know that we're saved. It's an outward demonstration of what's happened inwardly. Circumcision is very similar to the same idea. And as an enduring symbol, circumcision then intended to communicate that like Abraham, a person's favor in standing before God was based in faith, not the flesh. Not only did they feel like they were spiritually superior because they were descendants of Abraham, when Abraham was nothing but just a pagan Gentile initially, they then turned around and looked at the world around them and they judged everyone else as not being good enough. They had been given God's grace and they self-righteously concluded that because they were of the circumcision, they had this covenant with God, that they were better than everyone else. When the covenant, and this is Stephen's point, the covenant God gave with Abraham, this covenant of, of faith, of grace and obedience and faith, it's the same covenant that Jesus came to give. It's identical. I can see Stephen being passionate, kind of hitting his head like... Why do you not understand this? Why do you not see this? You place your faith in Abraham, but you don't even understand Abraham. You think it's by the relationship that Abraham had with God that you have standing with God. No. And if you really got it, you would have accepted Jesus because he was offering the same thing that God had offered your forefathers. They rejected Jesus because they had rejected his message of grace grace through faith. And yet Stephen eloquently and poignantly points out that the very framework of Abraham's relationship with God actually served to substantiate Jesus's message. Lesson two. We're not going to get to all five, just two. In presenting the patriarch's interactions with Joseph, Stephen illustrates that God had actually used their rejection of Jesus to exalt him to a position of favor. Verse nine, in the patriarchs. If you don't understand who the patriarchs are, quick explanation. You have Abraham. You have the son of promise, Isaac. From Isaac, he had two sons, the firstborn Esau, the second Jacob. Interestingly, Esau gets overlooked and Jacob becomes the son of promise. So everything God had given Abraham was given to Isaac. Everything God had given to Isaac was given to Jacob. Something interesting happens from Jacob on. Instead of it going to just one individual at this juncture, it's now handed to his sons. He had 12 of them. We call them the 12 patriarchs of Israel, these 12 sons of Jacob. Interestingly, later in the story, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel. And these 12 sons, these 12 patriarchs of Israel, as their descendants continued to work their way down, they would become tribes. So when we say the 12 tribes of Israel, we're saying the 12 patriarchs of Israel, we're saying the 12 sons of Jacob for context. So these men, they became envious and they sold Joseph, who was the favorite son of Jacob. You know, he had been given the coat of many colors. They sold him into Egypt. But Stephen points out that God was with him. And delivered him out of all of his troubles, of which there were many. You can go back and look in Genesis. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made Joseph governor over Egypt and all of his house. It's it's an incredible rags to riches, slavery to the throne kind of a story. Genesis 38 through 41. But there was a famine, and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, Joseph was pivotal in that. He sent our fathers first. So 11 of the sons are sent. Actually, 10 of the sons are sent. Benjamin is kept behind. There's an interesting story. They show up. Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. Um, It's kind of a secondary point, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time. But just read the story. It's funny how it all plays out. Ultimately, Joseph reveals himself. They cry and kind of freak out like that. You're Joseph. And he wants to see Benjamin, his brother. And it's kind of a whirlwind soap opera type story. The second time Joseph's made known to his brothers, Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph sent, called his father Jacob, his relatives to him, 75 people. They settled in the land of Goshen. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He died. He and our fathers they were carried back to Shechem. They were laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Yeah. you can get into the nitty-gritty of Joseph. You can get into the nuances. We can spend the next hour talking about the story. But I just want to focus on Joseph with one kind of context. In Joseph, we see incredible similarities of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the points that, that Stephen's kind of picking out here and recounting this, this, this narrative serve to facilitate this reality. As the cherished son of their father, Joseph is the cherished son of Jacob, Jesus, the beloved of the father, as the cherished son of their father, both men, they end up being rejected, right? They are rejected and they're treated with utter contempt. By whom? Their brothers. Their brethren. For Joseph, it was literally their, his brothers. For Jesus, it was his countrymen. It was his brethren. In the same way that Stephen opens up by referring to these men as his brothers, same can be said with Jesus. And in both instances, these men were rejected by their brothers for one reason. Did, did you see what it was? Why they hated Joseph? Because he was favored It was envy. They were envious. It shouldn't be an accident that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, as Pilate's trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, that he makes this this statement. He says that that he knew that Jesus had been handed over because of envy. They were jealous. And, And you see this all the time when you look at the life of Jesus. They were envious of his incredible knowledge of scripture, his, the fact that he spoke with authority. They were envious that he had such a following, that the people responded in such a way. They were envious. They were envious with Joseph and they were envious over Jesus. And so they treated him poorly. They rejected him, treated both with contempt, but, and note, we're told that in regards to Joseph and with Jesus, though the brethren rejected him, treated him harshly, but God was with them, delivered them out of their troubles. And then what ends up happening? Well, if you look at the story of Joseph, Joseph gets sold into slavery because they're jealous. He's a slave in Egypt. So he's sold into slavery. His brothers hated him. They got rid of him. But what ends up happening? Because they sold Joseph into slavery, He makes it to Egypt to find favor with Pharaoh, to be exalted to a high position. To do what in the process? When the famine came to save his brethren because they find their way to Egypt and it's like, ta-da, you rejected me, but God had a plan because you needed to be saved. Isn't that interesting? The parallel we find with Jesus Jesus came and was rejected, rejected by you, rejected by me. He was sentenced to death for one reason, our sin. And yet in the moment, yes, Jesus died an ugly, nasty death because of you. Because you rejected him and in your sin, you defied him. But in the process of rejecting Jesus, yes, he died, He died because of your sin. But in the interesting, glorious reality, he died for your sin. He died to save you from you rejecting him. It's a a fascinating, incredible, mind-blowing idea illustrated in the interactions with the patriarchs and Joseph. The very men who were guilty of the initial crime we're still afforded the same opportunity to benefit from the exalted Savior. It's as though Stephen, it's as though he's looking at these men and through this illustration, he's saying, You rejected Jesus, you sentenced him to death, you did just what your, the patriarchs did to Joseph, but you failed to realize that in the same way that God worked in the life of Joseph, God used your rejection of Jesus to set the circumstances by which he might be exalted as Savior. It's like the hammer drops. This morning, how does this apply to us? We know how it applies to the religious leaders, but because this story is included in scripture, there's an application for you and for me. And I think think the applications are very simple. Two regards. First, Abraham. Abraham illustrates that a key to a relationship with God. Like if you want a relationship with God, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard for it. You don't have to go out, go door to door or go on a mission trip or throw up 700 Hail Marys. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be baptized, you don't have to take the holy eucharist. It it doesn't matter what you do. Matter of fact, if you could do anything, Jesus wouldn't have needed to die for you. See, the reality is you could do nothing to earn God's favor. You are, pardon the expression, screwed. That's what the Bible says, dead in your sins and trespasses. No hope, no chance. You're in a heap load of trouble with no way to get out. And the deeper you dig, the further away you are. And yet Abraham, God came to Abraham. And he said, hey, Abe, would you like a better life? And Abraham's like, looking at these pagan things, this other culture, this other society around him. He's like, Phew. yeah, you know what? I'm kind of empty. I'm kind of lacking. All these, all, all these other gods promise to satisfy, but I'm empty and I'm burnt out. And you know, yeah, well, okay, so so, so what do I have to do? Well, you don't have to do anything for my favor, it's yours. But if you wanna enjoy that favor and really maximize every part of the life I have for you, I'm calling you out of the world for, well, Abraham, you're just gonna need to obey me. If you obey me and walk with me, sky's the limit to the life that you'll have. And the work I can do in you and through you. And the way that Abraham was able to figure it all out is to realize that I've got to trust the promises of God by faith. But then also like the patriarchs of old, may you also come to the understanding, and I will say it again because it is so radical, that it was because of your sin that Jesus died and suffered. But it was also for these sins. That Jesus was exalted as Savior. He didn't stay on a cross, he was laid in a tomb and proved victorious. And as a result, this morning, if you don't know God, I hope maybe through the void and through the darkness, God is speaking into your heart saying, I have a life for you. Do you want it? It's yours. I hope this morning that if the Lord's speaking into your heart in that way, that you'll respond to that. And if you're a believer walking with Jesus, Abraham, the patriarchs, they were the brethren. The basis of our relationship is what? Grace. Which means when you screw up and when you trip up and when you fall down and when you take a detour to Haran, or wander in the wilderness, or starving because there's a famine. You can always go back to this one point. Wait a second. If my relationship with God is based in grace, and I've totally screwed all this up, then wait a second. I can come back to the basis of my relationship with God and start over. Because it's undeserved merit. So Father, we want to allow those words to ring into our hearts,